You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 68. I'm your host, Sarah Head, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. Today we're discussing the Polynesian Connection. Did prehistoric Polynesian sailors make it to the East Coast? Did they bring chickens and take sweet potatoes home with them? What does an actual controversy look like within the archaeological field, and how do archaeologists handle it when we're presented with evidence? Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I am joined today by my co hosts, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. How's it going, guys? It's going great, except right now I've got an airplane flying over my house. So for our next podcast, I'll try to redirect the air traffic so we don't get that background noise. Yeah. Well, I can't hear it. I can't hear it, so maybe it's my I can't hear it, so maybe it's my fault. <laughs> but um, we could just you know, not, that, not, that, not that that means anything. So um, uh, we're enjoying lovely February weather. You know, uh, 70 degrees and high winds and tornadoes and such. I mean, you know, that's normal for February in northern United States. It was, oh, yeah, for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, no, 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 no worries. It was, guys, it was 80 degrees when I went to the zoo on Friday. 80 degrees in dc that's pretty messed up that's pretty DC. messed up we've got we've got uh, we've got the, the daffodils and crocuses are coming up in february here yeah that's crazy yeah the daffodils that they planted in the little in between the roads here are all blooming now and i'm just like well that's pretty i keep thinking well, it's march this is fine everything is fine everything is fine it's just situation normal absolutely yeah, you know, whatever <laughs> but anyway <laughs> so today uh, we're going to talk about some things that may or may not have been affected by global climate change. Um, we're going to talk about some, we've talked about diffusionism on the show before and, and why we do and don't like the idea. Well, we don't like the idea, but why it's not a great idea. But people have emailed and asked if we could talk about actual controversies that are had within the archaeological community by actual professional archaeologists. And we've discussed some and uh, this is another one that I thought we could touch on, which is the Polynesians making it to the Americas um, in the prehistoric past. Right. And, and in the relatively and the relatively recent past too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A thousand years or so. Yeah, yeah. And remember that this this actually was a real big thing with uh, Tor Heyerdahl and his Kantiki experiment. Back was that in the fifties or sixties? In the fifties, in the fifties, late forties right. and fifties. And he was arguing to the other direction, right? Right. He was he was arguing for Peru the other way. Well, Heyerdahl. So interestingly, with Heyerdahl, and I and I don't want to derail, but we already are. Um, Heyerdahl. Interestingly, one of the things that is often really minimized about him is that his stuff was at not his later stuff, but early on, he was actually a lot closer to some of the stuff we often rail about. Because most people are like, well, he was wrong about Peru, but maybe the other way, and he got in a boat, and that's awesome, and there was a TV show or a movie. Right. Um, he actually did talk about whiteness early on when he was younger. He talked he talked in more hyperdiffusionary terms okay. uh, of the sort that I, I don't have the book with me, maybe for the show notes, but something like Thor Heyerdahl and the, and the, uh, the Atomic Age or something. I, I ran into a few years ago that pointed this out, and in fact, there were maps and and labels for maps and things that were used and this is right after world war ii in a german edition or a european edition that were not used in an american edition uh for reasons that i think you can guess um but i mean he kind of abandoned that and he was very young when he did that um but yeah there's some interesting underpinnings to some of that that uh 
But nonetheless, it, it, yes. that it still is usually more benign than a lot of the things we right. often talk about. And Heyerdahl, actually, he was um, a talking head. He was interviewed in the the BBC Horizon response to um, von Daniken. So it was the case of the search for ancient astronauts, a case of the ancient astronauts. And he he says quite clearly that that uh, tr that um, um, folks living all over the world in in what are you know, non-Western societies are far smarter than people in Western societies, and we're ca perfectly capable of carving the stones on Easter Island. And they so he he speaks out very strongly against ancient astronauts, ancient aliens. Yeah, the clo the closest he ever got to 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 that, I would say, other than initially very early on. The closest he ever got to that was when he was also trying to argue for Egypt. He liked the idea that the boats... Uh, right. Yeah, and that one fell apart in him. I mean, the raw boat just, like, just literally disintegrated in the Atlantic because, right. as we're going to see, ocean currents matter. Mm, um, right. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why we're talking about this uh, today. And even then, that would only be if you go with the old-timey, uh, like Grafton Elliott Smith, like, oh, Egyptians were white, or, or Flinders Petrie, Egyptians right. were white, blah, blah, right. which I don't, I have not read Heyerdahl closely enough if he ever said that. I, I suspect he didn't, actually. I don't right. know. Um, just, you mentioned, you mentioned Eric. You mentioned Eric. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, apparently they just republished a book of his that he, in English that he had done in 2011 yes. uh, on, on the Maya. <laughs> How was I, it? Can you, I don't can know. You, I'm not. Can I can't. I can't touch that. You can't hardly <laughs> wait to get one of those, right? Uh, no. Um, I think that's not unlike Superman and Kryptonite, except Ooh. not like the, not except not the Kryptonite that hurts because that would give it power, but more like the one that like there's the one. It was a Superman three where it makes him drunk. <laughs> it would probably be closer to that. Anyway, I don't oh want to gosh. diverge. I just, All I right. just, I just saw that he did an entire Maya centric book. I'm like, oh, well, that's lovely. That's lovely. Well, you know, it's, yeah. it's so. time to publish it. You know what? five years after 2012 well that's apparently the thing is apparently it was written with all the 2012-ness and i'm like wow that's yeah. some, that's some smooth that's some smooth moves there <laughs> good, we good specifically job, we specifically did not put a 2012 article although we probably mentioned it once in lost city found pyramid for that reason it <laughs> yeah. has an ex has a literal expiration date there you it go in fact you go. is a literal expiration <laughs> date take it off the shelf all right, but so, to anyway, bring us, anyway, <clears throat> bring us back around. Right. Um, so we've talked about now that this kind of hits on two topics that we have gone over with the diffusionism being one of them and the other one being independent invention. Right. And <clears throat> that'll come in later when we talk about the boats. But the two strongest pieces of evidence, I think, um, for for Polynesian contact with the Americas is the sweet potato. And, well, it was the chicken, but I think we've kind of blown that one out of the water. But this Polynesian contacting, and I want our listeners to be aware of this, this is one of those things that um, we do discuss as an academic field and, and as professionals because it is possible, but is and not super interesting. It's super, super interesting, interesting because yeah. it's so it's like it, it 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 was so close to maybe actually happening, but yeah. we don't have any really hard evidence to support that it did happen. So just because See, it that's... could happen doesn't mean that it did. Yeah. That's that's the thing. This is all about evidence. Um you will see especially in the the popular treatments of of this story in newspapers online and even among those people who are supporters of this notion that the Polynesians got to the got to, to South America, is that they keep getting back to if we say, well, we don't we are skeptical, we're not sure there's sufficient evidence, the argument that you'll hear is, oh, what do you what you think that those Polynesians could not have found South America? And it, that's a distraction and a deflection. Because we're no one here is saying they were incapable of uh, hey man, they found a, a dot. Easter Island, yeah. which is a if dot. anybody's going to find South America, it's the friggin' Polynesians. Exactly. Right. They were good and, at that and, sort of thing. And <laughs> we're not saying, and we're not saying that they couldn't have. This is an argument all about just as just as Sarah said, could have doesn't mean did. The did part is what is the archaeological, what is the genetic evidence that would that's been presented to support the claim that in fact Polynesians made it to South America. That's really all this is about. It's not about could they have. We will stipulate absolutely that, if, as Jeb just said, if anybody could have found South America, it was the Polynesians. But now 
The mere fact that they could have doesn't mean that they did. Let's look at the evidence. And as Sarah pointed out, we're talking about sweet potatoes here and chickens. I don't know, you want to talk about the chickens first only because that seems to be, um, it's got a nice arc to that story where it was presented, it was responded to, and now we're sort of sitting here thinking maybe that evidence was not sufficient. I mean, support the claim. If it it helps our listeners, if it helps our listeners, I could have gone and had a really fun time Saturday night. It's possible, but I didn't. Right, right, right. right. Uh, yeah, but I think a lot of people, having listened to you, Jeb, would say, "Well, no, it, it's probably maybe it's not, not, it's not really plausible. It's not plausible that Jeb could have." A All right, because it's kind of like Vikings. It's kind of like Vikings. They could get a little far in, but not the whole way. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. This so, is going places. The chicken thing what we're talking about is, in, I think it's 2007. Alice Story is an archaeologist um, excavating a site in, I think it was Chile, found yes, I believe 50, so. Fifty chicken bones. And the 50 chicken bones were uh, derived from five individual birds, and it's gallus gallus. It's it's the regular old world chicken species. It's chickens. And the radiocarbon dates that she derived from that site uh, put the site at between 1320 and about 1410. That's A.D. 1320. Which I will say this, as a colonial archaeologist, you will see things like this. Like I deal with... um, like styles of pottery and like you see plates and it's like you know if you're seeing something that looks kind of something else and it starts to get really close to contact period i that i just want to say that's another issue that's another issue because if it's really close to contact period that's not i would love it not to be that close if you're right. trying to argue for separation right, right, it right. doesn't mean it couldn't happen that way right. that is entirely possible it can only be 100 years but that would be a yellow flag maybe well, not a red flag but a yellow flag and i think it's important to to tell people that the reason the reason why we would want a different or an older date is because when you start getting that close to contact even with the c14 there is a margin of error there that can lean right. one way or the other and if it leans the other way then it completely it, it well, puts those chickens into the modern if they're giving that date if they're giving that date that I, I suspect that is taking that in consideration, but I agree with you. And and the broader issue is also recognizing. So, for example, I work in a uh, number of different things, but one of the things I've done is colonial archaeology. And you will see people who will write about like, oh, this is Aztec and this is colonial period. And they'll say like, because these are the first colonial bits we find. And they're showing me like olive jars from the 15th, like uh, basically they're kind of like, if you if you know classical, like an amphora, amphora, right, uh, storage jar, um, same sort of thing, like from the 1570s, because they have types. And there's one that was before the 1570s, one from like the 1570s to later, and then a later one. And they're like, oh yeah, there's like this kind of myolica and like a middle style olive jar. And like, this is colonial because we have colonial bits. And I'm like, this this thing was made 60 years after Cortez burned Tenochtitlan to the ground. <laughs> in all likelihood, the tail end of what you're calling Aztec in this particular case is probably the early colonial period. And that's a, I gave an essay paper about this. And I'm not saying that's what's happening in this case. I suspect it's not because there's other issues here. But right. that's one of these things we have to be very careful about when we're talking about these kinds of topics. Also. So, Jeb, Jeb, I have a question for you as, a, as a, a scholar working in the colonial period. One of the arguments given by the folks who want to believe, in fact, that Polynesians made it to South America and they brought chickens was that in 1532, Pizarro reports that chickens are an integral part of Inca diet. And the Portuguese maybe had um, sailed along that coast maybe 30 years earlier. Is 30 years enough time, the argument being that they were such an important part of the diet, they were so integrated into subsistence, it's impossible that Europeans could have introduced them only 30 years before. Well, the thing I would say, that seems really unlikely. And also, I work in Central America. I mean, I'm familiar with South American archaeology. I I, I don't want to be a jerk, but I probably know South American archaeology better than either of you, but it's not my thing. Oh, yeah. No one's arguing. Um... I would have a hard time with that. It's not like if you go digging, you find chicken bones everywhere at, at these sites. I I would have to look into that further, but that also makes me wonder if it's one of those, we call it a thing in the colonial period when it's really not that thing. I mean, remember, gotcha. the, the the Maya word, I mean, they, they would do stuff like, I mean, the, the infamously, uh, the, you know, they would use words like 
uh, you know, for example, a few years ago, uh, Jason wrote a post about this. Um, there was, I think it was the Turkish president, Erdogan, I could be wrong about that. He was very happy because Columbus talked about seeing mosques yes, in, yes. In, in the Caribbean. Well, they weren't. That was literally the word that a guy who was from a culture that just was throwing Muslims out of Spain would use for something exotic. You know, it's, right, it's right. yeah. Um, they also called these things, they called uh, uh, the Aztec pyramids, they called them towers. Right. They're not really towers, but I could see why you'd call them that. And you get a lot of that. And it goes the other way. The, um, the, the Yucatec Maya word for um, chicken today, actually, is gosh. And the reason is gosh is that's short for Kashtayano Ulum. And Ulum is a turkey. And so they uh, called it Kashtayano Ulum, but they shortened it to Kash. So basically it means Spanish turkey because they knew what a turkey was because they'd had right. it for thousands of years. Uh, and their word for chicken is a Spanish turkey because Makes they sense. didn't have any other word for it. I, I, a lot of that happens in the colonial period. I mean, we see words that initially get picked up like cacique. You see that all throughout the Spanish world, that's a word from the Caribbean. Once they pick it up in the Caribbean, they assume, well, all Indians, which of course is a whole other word that's a problem. Right. Uh, that's the whole point is these words quickly start to get um, thrown out. And even we do this. I mean, we call spear throwers atlatls because that was the first people that Europeans ran into right. that had spear throwers, and they were the Aztecs. Yes. But we now call them atlatls. Like, oh, look at this North American atlatl. This North American what? Yeah. Um, so I, I think I suspected something like that. I'd have yeah. to look into it, though. I don't sure. I don't know that. Well, to be they fair. Did have, they did have – they had Muscovy ducks. That was the main – the main domesticates right. in South America were llamas, alpacas, guinea pigs, uh, Muscovy ducks. Mm -hmm. In so Central America, there were turkeys. So it's possible that they're finding like duck and duck eggs and. I don't. I don't, I, 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 I don't know the. I don't know those particular Pizarro records. Gotcha. Okay. Right. It's not. Right. It's, not it's not something I have looked at carefully enough to be able to say anything further on that. Just, just as, as you know, we since we go off on tangents a lot. This whole not business of, of 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 using words of misinterpreting words. Um, in, in Connecticut, we have the site called Gunjiwam, which um, the traditional explanation is that it's, it's an interesting farmstead. It's 19th century, and we have a bunch of French people saying, oh, no, no, it's ancient, and it was there before Europeans got here. And those folks have found a statement in a historical document that dates to the 16, early 1700s about there being a fort in Mystic. And the modern, these modern folks are interpreting the word fort to mean, well, it must be a big stone structure where in fact, the use of the word fort in those days meant a palisaded village was a fort. So it's this misuse of a word, assuming a modern interpretation of that word right. is correct and, and applying it centuries back. You've got to be really careful when you do that. But that's, again, I'm not a linguist either. And that's, uh, that's well, there's another issue there. Let me actually, you know, we, we, we're coming up on our break. Let me actually give a little kind of story that I think maybe puts some of this in context. And I want to say this straight out. None of us are linguists. None of us play linguists on television. And exactly. more importantly, none of us are linguistic anthropologists, which is really kind of a different thing. That's really, when we're saying linguists, we're really talking about linguistic anthropologists, which is a whole different, no, not whole different, but I know people that bristle when they're called a linguist rather than a linguistic anthropologist. Right. Um, but when I was a long time ago, let's see, um, uh, 23 years ago, when I was in early graduate school and I had to take a core course in linguistic anthropology, um, uh, we had to read various things in graduate seminars. This was a mixed grad undergrad thing. And I, I'm selling this all for a reason. It's not just because I'm old. Um, get off my lawn. But uh, <laughs> all to be fair, get off my lawn. But uh, we, in graduate seminar, you have to read a book or an article or a set of articles and critically address them. And I ended up with Joseph Greenberg's book on language in the Americas. I think it may later be called language in the Americas. And he's famous for arguing for basically a large unified, that the essence where there was one big push of language that most na Native American languages other than uh, the, the last couple, like in the Aleutians and a few others in the North are all basically unified, arguing for one big push early on and then two smaller ones much later. He was largely accurate, although we now know that it's more complicated, much more complicated very early on. But his methods were a mess. And I took this course with Judy Maxwell, and she very much loved this, this part of it because he would take words that kind of sort of sound the same, but if you had really loose rules, it's like, 
well, this is word whatever that starts with a B for the word arm. Well, over here, there's a word for arm that also starts with a B. It's like, that's not how, that's not how that historical works. linguistics really works. Right. And so Greenberg was really trying to create this unity out of very loose rules. On the other hand, in the grand scheme, he clearly had some interesting insights because his larger scheme wasn't entirely wrong. But he would routinely like link things together that really, if you look at it, don't really work that way and then he'd go to another case and the rules would bend in a somewhat different way and again i'm saying this as somebody who read his stuff for graduate school but i bring this all up because this kind of issue seems to show up a lot like looks the same is the same sounds the same is the same when it comes to hyperdiffusion. And I've talked about this on the show before, I probably would be considered something of an expert in hyperdiffusion as it actually happens in, for example, colonial context. Like, what if people come across the ocean and really did colonize a place? What would that look like? Right. And the answer is, the evidence has to be a lot more specific. You have to have objects that really came from the place, and you have to have stuff that is clearly, and also contextually makes sense. And a lot of this stuff often doesn't make sense. So after the break, I think we're going to look at some of these specifics with that as kind of the frame. At digitaltraining.site, we believe that spending money on learning is great if it helps you solve a problem. If you're a cultural resource management professional, you want to make your workflow faster and more efficient to beat your competitors. If you're a student or young professional, you'll want to learn marketable skills to get that job. If you're a faculty, you want to stay up to date with teaching topics, but you feel overwhelmed by all the technologies and tools out there. Digitaltraining.site is for you. You'll get relevant topics by top-level instructors and downloadable materials at an affordable cost. And if you're an enrolled student, apply for a scholarship and attend for free. Start learning now at digitaltraining.site. And we are back. So we were talking about chickens and yes. Ken brought up. So we were talking about chickens and we were talking about chickens because they were originally used as evidence for contacts or possible evidence of contact with the Polynesians with uh, South America right. and the California coast. Yeah, that now, was the article published in 2007. Right. Yeah, and, and I remember being super excited by that. Yeah. Right. But that, but what happens, of course, is that it was in 2013, um, a much broader analysis of chicken genetics um, yes. took place. And, and then we have this this, is, we've discussed genetics on the show before, and we've we, I feel like in that episode we kind of talked about how genetics are not the end all be all, but they can prove a lot of good things. Right. And this is one of those really good things that genetics can step in and help correct. And unfortunately, it removes chickens as decent evidence for Polynesian contact. But Yeah, so it's Vicki Thompson, who's a geneticist, and they looked at, they had 122 modern samples of chickens from Polynesia and 22 archaeological samples, and they had the genetic information from the chicken bones in South America. And effectively what they figured out was that, you know, I, I think when we had Jennifer Raff on, didn't we talk about mitochondrial haplogroups? Yes. And when, when applied to the, 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 settling, the settlement of the, of the Americas, whether it's yes. A, B, C, D, and X, and those haplogroups are found in, in Native Americans, and some of them at least are found in Northeast Asia. So there's that connection. Well, applying a similar kind of analysis, what, um, what, what Thompson determined was the chickens in Polynesia, there are two fundamental haplogroups, and they're haplogroups D and E. But the deal is that that D is the most common. If you, you find D in 100% of the, the, the samples from Rapa Nui, Easter Island, were haplogroup D, and, and very high percentages of haplogroup D were spread throughout Polynesia. This is both in modern or relatively recent chicken remains and archaeological remains. The haplogroup in South America, the archaeological sample, was, hap was, was haplogroup E, which apparently is a worldwide, that, that you find E virtually all over the world. And what they did a bunch of, of, of mathematical statistical manipulations and came up with these various um, trees, genetic trees, and said that it is far more likely that the chickens in South America result came there from Europe. 
Yeah. Now that the problem, of course, is that doesn't fit. You, you, you've got the, the the issue is if you've got radiocarbon dates. The dates, yeah. The dates don't match that because there are no Europeans in South America at that time. A hundred years later, there are though. But a hundred years later, there are, and when you look at the vicissitudes of radiocarbon dating, um, you've you've got to take you've got to consider the possibility that the dates are simply not correct yeah one out of 20 uh, radiocarbon dates at two sigma will be wrong right and so you've got that there's a, that every possibility that if the genetic now of course um alice alice story who uh, the original researcher has responded this is back and forth in the proceedings of the national academy of sciences and she says well they haven't proven that at all because in fact the her Oh, she she was highly critical of the fact that most of the samples that were used by Thompson were of modern chickens. And she says, well, of course, there's been all this cross-contamination and on and on and on. Um, effectively, a handful of chicken bones in South America that may or may not, not date to before European contact and the chicken bones don't look like they actually genetically uh, are derived from Polynesian chickens, that kind of evidence is not what I think anybody would be comfortable with as being really strong, definitive evidence that Polynesians made it to South America. Then again, we're not saying they could not have gotten there. We're not saying they weren't capable of it. We're saying that specific piece of evidence is not very strong. Well, in the Nat Geo article you sent, actually the final paragraph would be my answer. And I'll just simply read it. If the presence of pre-Columbian chickens, is, this is a quote uh, from the article by, um, by Rolf Smith for National Geographic, March 19, 2014. Uh, if the presence of pre-Columbian chickens is a good indicator that Polynesians succeeded in crossing the Pacific, the absence of one of their old shipmates, Radis exulans, the Pacific rat, right. makes an equally compelling case against it. The Pacific rat is known to have traveled everywhere with their Polynesian hosts. And wherever they landed, they invariably established thriving local rat populations that live on to this day. There are no Pacific rats in South America. I mean, that's that's the problem. It's the old, well, I've got this thing that looks like a carving from somewhere else. Oh, do you have their foodstuffs? No. Exactly. Do you yeah. have their wheels? No. Do you have their metallurgy? No. Do you have their genetics? No. But this looks like this. Yeah. The lack of significant pieces of evidence of things that we would expect. Ken and I go on about garbage all the time, but the lack of these things is excellent evidence against an argument. And as Jeb's pointing, pointing out, with the lack of rats, I mean, I mean, I don't think that that would be a hundred percent against it, but I would not it's feel pretty compelling making that. I would point out this is really weird, and maybe somebody should look at it. But going farther than that, when you don't. If I was at, and there are actually examples of, of this, and I, I don't think we can get into this because I don't think we've done enough background research, but there's famously the, uh, the Kalish Lawaka head, this little Roman figurine head that was found, I want to say like a Teotihuacan period site in, uh, in Mexico, and it's a little Roman figurine head. Now, where's the rest? Right. And the fact that it's something very stylistically, obviously, no question, Roman, if it was Samian ware, I would still have problems with it, but the fact that it's like, by the way, this has neon signs that say Roman on it makes me wonder if we're dealing with somebody who, who placed it. Now, I don't think that's the case here. I suspect that the fact that I brought up this is really close to contact is probably relevant. Mm -hmm. But it, the, the rest of it's not there. Right. I would not have, want to publish that. <laughs> we have, you know, we have very, very, um, very cool and informative models of what it looks like when a group of colonial people enter into an area. I ex my archaeology, my fieldwork is here in New England, and if if we when you when you dig here, you find a very clear point in the str in stratigraphy where a completely new culture arrives with glazed ceramics, with glass, mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. with iron, and it's if you had no his if you if, if you just kind of if history stopped here in the in the the middle and late 17th century, uh, any archaeologist digging here would recognize immediately that there is substantial. And, and and convincing evidence that another group entered into this area with with a new with different garbage with different stuff yeah. with different technologies and that's what we expect 
Yeah. Well, again, I've mentioned this before. My dissertation is literally on, I would again be considered an expert on this, that my dissertation is on a first contact or damn near first contact site. Cortez lands in 1519. My site was set up maybe in 1525, probably in 1528. Uh, That's nine years later. Okay. That's, you know, and Europeans entered the area of what's known as El Salvador five years at most before before the site I'm talking about. So it's basically a first contact site. Now, my site is really obvious. There are buildings. There are streetways. There are metallurgy. There's new technologies. There's things that are clearly imported. But here's the thing. We can also identify indigenous villages from the 16th century that are post-contact. Are most of the materials indigenous? Yes, they are. But there's a persistent residue that is not, and other things change. You start to no longer have indigenous religious symbols on pottery because it would have been considered, we know from the historical record, uh, idolatry by the new Christian overlords. So you can tell. Now, could you tell me a 1530 versus a 1500 site? I don't know if you could do that unless there were a bunch of Spaniards there. But can you tell me a 1500 versus 1600 site? Yeah, you can. Even, a, even in a rural indigenous village, yes, you can. Well, that's the, that's the cool thing, too, is in the American Southeast, um, DeSoto's expedition through the Southeast, the Entrada into Florida, spent years, his group spent years in the, in the Southeast. You can, you can find at native sites, you can actually find brass bells, and you can find pieces of iron sword, and you can find Venetian beads in native context, but clearly they are trading with, they are, they are obtaining these materials from an alien group with a different techno with different technologies that are moving through the area. And again, yeah, I don't know South American archaeology well enough. A handful of chicken bones is really interesting, but it's not enough when especially when as Jeff said the radiocarbon data is kind of late and the ge- and the genetic data don't support the notion that these things came from from Polynesia. But, you know, are we being are we doubting Thomas's you're damn right, but that's the way we approach everything. No. And here's well, the thing. And- I think we're I think we're actually being a little harsher almost because this could actually be like yeah. this is not bullshit. I think that's right. we, we've now oh, hit right. our our drinking game when you when, when we're going to say it or or, or or how long. But uh, it should be kind of like uh, anyway, the secret word was said, but um, or the lack of secret word. But this is not bullshit. This is actually a plausible concept, mm-hmm. and when it becomes plausible, it's actually harder to laugh off. So we have to be damn serious about. Yeah. It. Well, and Ken made a good segue for us because one of the other objects that is brought up is a a foreign object, is the sweet potato. And there is the argument made that the only – there's two arguments that I hear about the sweet potato. And one is that it just floated across the – it just floated across the ocean to other land and just took root and started growing. The – argument that a lot of people who are pro-contact use is that it was actually a trade commodity and this comes back to the linguistics things apparently and again i am not a linguistic i whatever well let's 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 get our biases out of the way let's have a show of hands who prefers sweet potato versus like normal potato for the food I, no I, never when they what? offer me sweet potato fries i gag i want oh, french fries no Real sweet potatoes are delicious I'm oh, kind of a can on this one. You like no, them? Yeah. I love sweet potato fries, especially with like I know, the mayonnaise I know some or some dill sauce. Yeah, they're what, good. What kind of sauce? What kind of sauce? I like mine with dill sauce or like the mm. flavored mayonnaise is aioli. I like oh, that. Yeah, uh, you know what? That might be okay. It's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm closer to Ken on this one. But yeah, I like a savory sweet potato. I don't like a sweet, sweet potato. Fresh French fries with ketchup. Yeah, I'm bo- <laughs> I am boring that way, but I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Back to the actual yeah. science of sweet potatoes. I just thought that that would be something. So we all know our biases. I like sweet potatoes. There you go. So you believe in Polynesians bringing them because you because you like them. That's where we're going. With, I, right? I, yeah, I, guess. I believe in Polynesians because there's evidence they exist. <laughs> um, as far as now, the, the sweet potato went from South America to Polynesia, right? To the Pacific Islands. Yes, from South America yeah. to Polynesia. This the, this one is the, the reverse of the chicken. And right. that's and yes. that's where it comes in because they're like, oh, this is well, obviously you're saying that, that, a trade. You're saying that's the argument. You're saying that's the argument. Yeah. The argument yes. is that Polynesians landed, 
they, they made it to South America, right? Saw sweet potatoes, said that hey, we could we could really do well with those rather rather than having had them themselves all the time, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Yes, that they got them from the Americas, took them back home with them, and yeah. I guess in the process dropped off chickens. So that yeah. that was the ongoing <laughs> it's, argument. That's like the trade. It's like sellers of Catan. It's like I'll give yes. you, you know, X number of chickens for sheep. Potatoes. If you if you have sheep, yeah. I have wood. Yes. Now, the the article that will will uh, um, uh, include a link uh, to the article is by Carolyn Roulier in 2013. Again, the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and um, they she looked at a whole ton of sweet potato. Now, the, one of the problems with sweet potatoes from an archaeological archaeological perspective is you know, these things do not preserve. Yeah, it's no, not it's really like hard. Seeds or nut fragments. So the research that she did all involve both um, modern specimens, but also herbarium specimens. So these are things that dated back to even the late 17th century. And she had a bunch of stuff that, you know, Captain Cook brought back. So we're looking at, in theory, these are sweet potatoes um, uh, collected in Polynesia at very earliest contact. So there's been no contamination with, you know, new batches of sweet potatoes brought in. So again, that gets messy, but we'll right. continue. Yeah, yeah. It's not perfect. And in any event, it, her model is that sweet potatoes came into Polynesia in three ways. It's called okay. the tripartite model. Right. The first is the sweet potato that in South America is called Kumara, and it's got almost the identical name getting getting into this linguistic argument mm -hmm. throughout polynesia this, this is this this is the stuff that's that's the most controversial because this is dated in uh, to a thousand between a thousand and eleven hundred a.d now again we don't have sweet potato dated to that period we have an agricultural complex with the, the same tools that are found later on historically when they're growing sweet potatoes so there is that 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 logical jump where we're saying, well, we don't have sweet potatoes because they don't preserve, but we do have what appears to be the physical manifestations of the same complex that we find historically, and it goes back to a, a, as much as a thousand A.D. Which is um, not, it's not, it, it is a logical jump, but it is a logical jump. Yeah, exactly, exactly so, and that's the one that would have had to have made it from South America to Polynesia, obviously. Before Columbus, before European um, Europeans uh, entered South America. However, the, the next two steps, one is called the Camote limit lineage. That's from Mesoamerica, and then there's the Batata lineage of sweet potatoes, and that's from the Caribbean. And the historical evidence seems to indicate that that second lineage, Camote, actually comes from Mesoamerica and was brought to Polynesia after AD 1500 by Spanish galleons. They loaded up with sweet potatoes. They're sailing west across the Pacific, and they're sharing sweet potatoes with Polynesians for the most part towards the western part of Polynesia. And that would and have then, to be after 1570. We can actually detect when they start the 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 the, the, the galleons start getting over after Manila is founded by the Spaniards, and we can literally detect when that happens because we start to find Ming porcelains. Like this is archaeologically okay. detectable. Yeah. So that's cool. And then the the third, this batata is also in the 1500s that shows up in western polynesia and that form that genetically is most closely related to caribbean sweet potatoes and the idea there is that that actually got to western polynesia by portuguese traders but through europe so they're bringing it back to europe and eventually huh. it goes the other direction hmm. wow um, so like around india and whatnot yeah, yeah. the well-traveled huh. potato uh, so, so we're, now what, what they're suggesting is that there actually were three separate domestication events in the New World, at least three, for the sweet potato. One in South America, one in Mexico, and one in the Caribbean. And that these are genetically different and that in different ways they make it to Polynesia. For what we're talking about here, the most important is this Kumara. Um, that article has a, an amazing map showing the... Um, the, the, the directions in which it's hypothesized these went. And if you look at this Kumara in South America, again, getting back to the linguistics, it's Kumara or Kumar or Kumal. And in the, the Marquesas, the sweet potato there is called Kuma. In Easter Island, it's Kumara. In New Zealand, it's Kumara. 
that okay, name so that, shows that's, up. That starts to look pretty convincing. Yeah. yeah. And then this Camote, the Camote, the last one from the, the um, no, no, this is from, from Mexico, from Mesoamerica. If you look in the Philippines, if you look in China, in Japan, it's called Camote, sometimes spelled with a C, sometimes with a K. And the same thing in Western, in, in Micronesia, it's called Batata, which is exactly the name given it by the, um, but in in the Caribbean, but that one's coming in from the other direction. And so one thing, when we talk about Spaniards in the Philippines and other places, remember, it wasn't just Spaniards. There were Tlosh Collins, like basically people that were culturally kind of like the Aztecs. They were big enemies of the Aztecs and Ochilon, who became what were called conquistadores mexicanos, basically Mexican or indigenous conquerors in Florida, in South America, and in the Philippines. I mean, they oh. became part of the global Spanish empire and they were great settlers. In fact, the best settlers of Northern Mexico to the point where it annoyed the hell out of Spanish settlers because they did better were indigenous, but not from the region. So they were colonists, oh. but not from Europe. But not so European. we don't talk about that in our history books much, but a lot of the people, this is again, my site had a lot of these people, um, a lot of these colonists were not Europeans. There were Europeans or Africans, and there were a lot of indigenous Americans that then were colonists elsewhere and brought all sorts of stuff with them. So keep including that in mind. Indigenous, including indigenous foods. Languages, foods, right. the whole thing, yeah. So, so far we've eliminated the chicken, and now I think we've effectively eliminated the sweet potato. So let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, we will talk about the last big piece of evidence, which are these sewn plank boats. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm the host of the Heritage Voices podcast. Heritage Voices focuses on how CRM and heritage professionals, public employees, tribes, and descendant communities can best work together to protect their heritage through tribal consultation, collaborative ethnography, and indigenous archaeology. Now back to the show. And we are back, and I have... Misspoke. We did not eliminate the sweet potato because yeah. Ken, as you pointed out, yeah. The, the the deal here is at least in two of the 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 incidences of movement of the two sweet out of potato, two out of three two out of three. It's definitely post contact. We it's the Spanish and the Portuguese are are pulling this stuff around. And as Jeb pointed out, there may be indigenous Mesoamericans who are in the Philippines who are bringing their indigenous foodstuffs with them. It's, just, it's this other, this third case, this Kumara, in which, it, again, we don't have sweet potatoes that are fossilized. We're not recovering those archaeologically in Polynesia, but the, 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 comp, the agricultural complex that's seen by Spanish travelers, by, by, by Spanish travelers, by English travelers, by um, colonists in the 16th and 17th, 17th and 18th centuries for sure, it looks like that's been there for a long time. It's the same complex. So maybe, in fact, as much as a thousand years ago, using the same tools, the same agricultural techniques, they are planting sweet potatoes. If that is the case, and we're not saying it definitely, we're not saying it's certain. What we're saying is we cannot um, reject out of hand the possibility that, in fact, sweet potatoes made it into Polynesia, especially Eastern Polynesia. Um, 500 years before before the arrival of the Spanish, which well, will make this, it this brings up This brings up an issue that we've, we've talked about before. That might be. That might possibly be. Most of the people that talk about this are not interested in the friggin' sweet potato, no matter right. how much they like them with aioli. <laughs> the, the reason they, they are they interested, are you know, like people, will, will, they want to argue... Um, are not saying that they are instead arguing for, um, Oh, well, hang on. That means we can say everything is different. We can say everything is, is, is coming from one place to the other. Right. So it's one thing. It's like, Oh, these people are this, but then you'll be like, what about color symbolism in Mesoamerica and in Asia? What about this? They, it's the old hyperdiffusionism. And this gets yeah. to the notion of, um, I, I've, I've banged on before about how a lot of people try to just treat antiquity. Like there's sort of historical time. And then once you get past that, it's all very flat, kind of proto-historic flatness. And they would want to argue, okay, well, you've got sweet potatoes a thousand years ago. Therefore it's before like European history. Therefore everything can be back and forth. Now it's like, that's not true at all. Right. So that's, oh, a, that's, uh, I, I don't know. That just bothers me a little. 
no, no, no. Well, it's, it's all about, it, 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 I mean, the, the important, one of the important things to get out of this conversation is that we are not here saying under no circumstances is it possible for there to have been Trans-Pacific contact before Europeans got there? And under no circumstances, we're not saying, and we will never believe that that happened. What we're saying is, it, this has to be evidence-based. And in the case of the sweet potato, it's not a dead certainty that this happened a, a, a thousand AD. But we're, what we're saying here is that we cannot reject that possibility out of hand. But as Jeb has just indicated, that doesn't mean we, again, there needs to be evidence to show that anything else accompanied the sweet potato. And, well, and, and, and things may have, but it's not the things that people care about because right. they want to have hyperdiffusion to right. spread stuff uh, around and basically to argue for single causes and, and, and arguably, arguably to reject all kinds of other things. Right. And, and on this topic, and, and people like Alice Kehoe and others would argue that there's a difference between what they're arguing for limited ties relatively late on specific things versus right. big, broad, everything came from Asia because it really came from the old world. And on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, I'm not an expert in that literature, but I've read some of that literature of people that are arguing for the limited. But then you, not always, but you st you do sometimes see it kind of start to slide in that direction. Like it does feel a little finding the hyperdiffusion in the gaps, but it, it can't, doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to right. be. It really can just be, I am very interested in these specific things, but sometimes it's not. Well, sometimes it's just a sweet potato. Yeah, yeah. sometimes a potato is just a potato. Um, Which don't, again, not, not good French fries, so, I mean, who cares? Sweet potatoes are delicious, and they are nutritious and good for the environment. But anyway. they all Those last two definitely are true, but I'm also selfish. So. <laughs> Sorry. But so the last piece of evidence that usually gets brought up, and this is another one of those interesting, but I don't know how far it gets you, details is these sewn plank boats that are that were the main mode of transportation for the polynesians but are only seen in a couple places along the what is that the west coast there of, yeah mostly mostly california yeah chile. mostly california and there's one yeah. place in chile and um, are sewn plank boats the main i mean are dugout canoes and outrigger canoes they are more? they are not i don't know if they're the main they're one of them all right, they're one of, one of several. Polynesians had their own, we talk about the age of exploration, and we always think of, you know, Columbus and, and, and those guys, Magellan. The Polynesians had their own age of exploration before the Europeans ever got in boats and sailed right. across an ocean. And, and, and they were cap fully capable mariners. Absolutely. Well, and I'm, prob I'm, I'm very sure that there were different kinds of boats. It wasn't just like, here's a boat and all boats are this boat. I'm pretty sure that they had like their short distance boats, their long distance boats, their heavy duty boats, their light boats. I yeah. mean, boats are like cars. You don't have one car. You right. have a variety of different types and styles and uh, durabilities. Um, yes. This they have their sports utility boats. Exactly. SUVs. This, the particular boat that we're talking Jesus about. <laughs> an SUV boat. <laughs> <laughs> what? Stop. I'm trying to make a point. That was that was amazing. <laughs> Thanks, um, Jeb. So this sewn plank boat, and I'm going to say it wrong, so Jeb, you can probably correct me. It's called a Dalka, D-A-L-C-A. -A. No, I have no idea. So we're calling it a Dalka boat, and this is. It is claimed that the the Chile people copied this style of sewing the planks together much, from the Polynesians. Um, and if you've never seen a sewn plank boat, um, actually they've got a couple in the Smithsonian uh, Natural, not Natural History, yeah, Natural History Museum. <clears throat> they're really neat looking, and they're they're really they are. they're they are. really tightly laced together, and yes, they treat them. It's not like there's just like holes bored into wood and then you know really sloppy laced together. They're they're watertight, and they they yeah. work with the swelling of the wood, and I think there's some kind of rosin they put on it to fill in the yeah. you know the leaky bits. They're very ingenious, and it's it's really clever. And I'm like, why would you have ever thought to sew two things together when I don't know? It would seem simpler to just dig out a tree trunk, but apparently they did. And well, that's it's like why... it's like nails. I mean, you, know, you you take planks and then you like stick them together with little tacks, which right. is what you're doing with the, the European stuff. So you mm -hmm. know, it's 
It's a it's yeah. a similar kind of sort sense, of right? solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I guess it allows you to use less wood to make a larger object because you can just like with sewing, you can just stitch multiple pieces of fabric together to get one big piece. So you can do the same thing with the wood. And so this is a one of the arguments is is that this was brought over to the Americas along with other things that we have thusly debunked. But a lot of the like the technique is similar but not exact. The styles are similar but not exact and it's another one of those weird linguistic black holes where it's like the words are kind of the same but not quite so you know this is another one of those is the boat is this really possible evidence or is this another one of those independent um independent invention things that we've talked about in the show before where you've got multiple cultures coming up with the same idea because it's a logical step in the evolution of a tech. You know, I don't have a lot of wood, but I do have this twine. And, it, and if I put this tree resin on it or pitch or whatever I'm making, I mean, they, they were actually pretty, pretty inventive when it came to, like, the concoctions they could bring together back in the day. You know, I mean, is it just a natural step to go from a dugout canoe to a sewn plank canoe to whatever the next step would have been? Or does it have to have been handed down from another culture? And, and the answer is, I think, all, all the above. Yeah, I mean, sure. that's, I think that's why this is a compelling and, and in many ways why we are, we, are, we are being a lot more specific, I think, than we sometimes are because this is, again, more plausible. And it kind of falls, I think, for a lot of archaeologists, sort of like one of these, I, this has not been proven, but I'll consider this. Well, we're being more specific not only because this is more plausible, but because, as I said at the beginning, this is an actual – I mean, it's not like a burn-the-bridges-down controversy, but it is a controversy within the field of archaeology. And as such, this is how we treat it. We have to be – we have to have evidence, and it has to be as airtight as it can be before the greater community is going to accept it. So we can't have something – lazily thrown out there and expected to be picked right. up as evidence we have to chew but, this over completely and find all of the angles before we can say yes we will accept that as evidence well let's let's look at the flip side of this though we are routinely accused by people that want to have giants and aliens and white people vikings and blah blah <laughs> blah of not wanting to listen to anything that challenges what we say it's like what have we been doing for the last hour is we've been going, you know, I don't think this has probably been proven, but I'll listen to this. If yeah. you get me more evidence, I'll believe it. Of course, these things are amenable to the Illuminati satanic conspiracy that pays all of us. Right, right. So we can be charitable in this case, unlike the giants that we, whenever we get the bones, we smash them up, uh, like the good little satanic Illuminati conspiracy agents working for the CIA. That you know, are. somebody's somebody's gonna cut that clip out of this podcast now, Jeb. I hope you're happy with yourself. I don't, I don't care anymore. I don't fucking care anymore. And the, here's, they can, the they can cut that clip too. <laughs> the, the thing here is, we've actually talked about this before. Um, when this stuff hits popular media, yeah, um, it's all. Earth shaking. The, the the archaeologists are going to have to go back and rewrite the textbooks. And in all honesty, if there are if they really if chickens were really brought to South America and a, a handful of people are eating chickens, it, well, before, shit, I got to rewrite the textbooks. You got to rewrite like a footnote in one of the textbooks. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. And, and Ken, really... Ken, as the author of one of those textbooks, you would know. Absolutely. But the good news is then what I have to do is tell students, oh, that copy of the, the, the edition of the book you have, throw those away. You have to buy a brand new one. It's going to cost you more yeah. because we had to, you know, we had to throw away the textbooks. Yeah. No, you are actually incentivized financially to want to change the textbooks because you get more money. On the a only yearly way, basis. Yeah. The, I mean, and like, hey, look, and the thing I'm about to say, I'm, you may think I'm sounding funny, but I'm actually being serious. The only way this makes sense is literally if there is a global conspiracy of that, that frankly has to be kind of supernatural. And honestly, as I tell my students, if I was part of that, the clothing I'm wearing while I'm teaching you would be better. Right. Exactly. Yes. I so I'm sitting that. here. So I'm sitting here in, 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 in stuff from Coles and old Navy uh, or pennies. I'm clearly not part of the Illuminati conspiracy. Okay, kids. Well, I I've actually gotten emails from people. This is basically no offense to any of those stores. <laughs> right, right. But it, this, this, I've gotten pull. emails, emails from folks who have seen me on, you know, some stupid cable show, who actually accuse me of 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 being of of knowing the truth 
but being part of the, you know, we know you know more than you're saying, Fader. We just haven't figured out why. And so I guess I'm here to admit that, you know, me and Jeb, we're, and, and Sarah, we, we are part of that conspiracy. The Coles conspiracy? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you get, you, you, if you get one of their credit cards, you get a, they always tell you, you always get a nice discount. So on, on that particular order. <laughs> exactly. But, but to be fair, their prices are reasonable. No, I'm kind not even endorsing Coles. Nothing against Coles, yeah. but we want to endorse This them. podcast is not sponsored by the Coles Corporation. Now, if you want to sponsor us, Coles, I got a phone number you can call. <laughs> one of the things we, that we talk about a lot in archaeology, when, we're, when we are trying to let's bring this back around to where we started, right, trying right, to right. distinguish from <laughs> stuff, stuff that, that has developed, has been independently invented and developed in situ, in place, as opposed to a technology or a practice that has moved in from the outside. And one of the things we look for archaeologically uh, is this, the evolution. Most, most technologies evolve i mean look at you you know look at look at the 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 cell phone you had 10 years ago and look at the cell phone you cell phone you have now it and it takes a while for technologies to improve to perfect we see that with egyptian pyramids egyptians don't just start building damn pyramids they're building mastabas and the mastabas get stacked and then they try at an angle that's not so good and so they so there, there are these fits and starts these trial and error process that that denotes an in situ development. When we see something move in wholesale, complete, an entire complex of things shows up more or less instantaneously, we're a hell of a lot more liable to at least consider the possibility that it came in from the outside as opposed to, well, it, it developed internally. And in um, fact, there's an, entire, there's an entire literature on how things get either adopted wholesale or in parts and are incorporated into existing co- – we're not going to get into that, but it's one of the things I actually deal with is – uh, is this a thing that just because it fits nicely with the existing culture just kind of gets adopted and really transformed or does it bring a whole kind of complex with it and it depends on what it is and how it fits in there's a whole archaeologists spend a lot of time actually thinking about the issues that hyperdiffusion etc cetera, etc cetera, would right. do we actually do kind of sort of know what we're talking about yes well and I, I i i mean along that line though something like a boat would make a significant difference in the everyday lives of the people adopting it. Same thing with the chicken, maybe the sweet potato, because it's a good start to start. So the things that we are talking about are things that would have radically changed, yeah. could potentially no, sure. have radically changed the life around if, of the culture. If Polynesians showed up a place, I'm like, well, did their boats change? Because that would be my very first question. I mean, that would be one of the things you would expect. And that's the thing that we're – that is the thing that I have not heard associated with any of these. I have not read about, and then we see X and we see a culture shift or we see a subsistence shift or any of these things. I have not seen anything that is supportive of that statement. Right. So, they they seem, seem to be one-offs. Just one thing shows up. Well, and but something as significant as a chicken, I mean, to go back to what Jeb had said, you know, is or I think Ken asked this, could the chicken have become a major part of the subsistence pattern in 30 years. I say, hell yeah. I mean, look at it. It craps out eggs on a daily basis. And then when it stops crapping out eggs, you can eat it. I mean, yeah, that's going to become a major source of protein. If you, if, and and there are, there are examples. And on the one hand, there are things that don't work that way. On the other hand, pigs became part of the subsistence pattern very quickly in, in Mezzo and South America, very, very quickly. And there were, while there were peccaries, it's, that was not it. I mean, they just adopted pigs because they were really useful. Yeah. Boats. So, I mean, the, the plank boat thing, like, I don't know what to think about it, but it's certainly the sort of thing that I'm like, okay, these people show up in these boats. What's the thing you're going to copy from them? These boats. Like, that actually makes sense to me. Whereas right. usually when we're dealing with hyperdiffusion, it's like, oh, and then we copied, like, a deep mystical concept. Well, oh, did you take no. their iron? Why would did you? you? Take, did, you, did you take their pottery? No, but we took that. Well, right. That's what the person cares about. And that's my in point. This, like, go yeah. ahead. No, in but, this case, it's just, it seems, again, more plausible, though needs more evidence. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Like, the boat, right. to me, what we've talked about today and with the lack of commentary on giant shifts in social and economic patterns of these these people at the times that this is supposedly happening um it seems to me that this is an outcropping of the of the indigenous 
culture that's already there. This is an independent invention. Somebody went, oh, look, I can sew planks together and I have a boat. Isn't that a lot easier than spending a week digging out this other, this log Mm -hmm. so that we have. And that's also plausible. Also, they're probably lighter because you're not dealing with an entire piece, solid one piece of wood. I mean, you can make them thinner, I would imagine. I mean, there's a lot of reasons to move to something like a sewn plank boat. And the technology to do so was available in all of these cultures that have sewn plank boats. So the fact that we don't see a giant shift, like we do see with other technology, like Ken, you were talking about with your bowls, um, the soapstone bowls, they basically go completely, they they, they stop manufacturing them altogether almost when they Mm -hmm. get pottery. Exactly. So it's like, that's something that is noticeable. If if they had never had a plank boat before, this plank boat comes over and people are like, oh, here's some chickens. We'll take your sweet potatoes. And by the way, let's teach you how to make this boat. I would think that we'd see a major substance shift because now we've got chickens and that are much easier to take care of and a much easier protein source to get hold of. And you think you would see a shift into these boats because they might be a little like technologically more advanced, but they're still a better design, I would think, overall, or at least just different. But we don't I... see that. Well, and and so the chickens thing doesn't work for genetics. The 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 chickens the, thing does not work because of genetics. No. Yeah, yeah. The sweet potato, maybe. 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 The boats, maybe. Maybe. But they also could be independent invention. And the sweet potato. I mean, there really are mechanisms for discussing discussing other kinds of these things moving around. But if there's a large agricultural complex, it's not impossible. This is where there's. There are multiple plausible hypotheses, and it starts to come down to evidence. And I think that's, again, why we're getting more into specifics here than we often do. Right. Right. And, I mean, I'm going to go out there and say I don't think there was contact, which I think opens up a much more interesting question of we know that there could have been contact. So why wasn't there? What was preventing them? Aliens. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, and, and I think that's an interesting angle to look at as well. As close as they were and as skilled as they were, why were these cultures not interacting with each other? You know? For, for, for me, it's one of these things that I'm like, right now, uh, the evidence for it is really sketchy. But if somebody came, if somebody showed me evidence tomorrow, if somebody like showed up with a site of like ancient Romans in Minnesota, right. I'd be very friggin' skeptical. But I mean, maybe if it's really plausible. I totally Whereas if. I'd, I'd be interested, but I'd be real damn skeptical because right. it just doesn't make sense for any number of reasons. This one is like if somebody showed up with a site where like, oh, look, we've got Polynesian pottery. I'd be like, OK, this is kind of culminated. Right. Like, I, I could right. see it. But right mm-hmm. now it's not there. Right. And, then, and that's the thing. Like we sent them back with potatoes, but we didn't send them back with anything to carry the potatoes in. Yeah. No, no. I mean, there's there's problems. There's real right. problems. This is a lot closer than some of the things we talk about. Right. So wait a minute. So the Polynesians land on the coast of South America. They go back to Fiji, and all they have are T-shirts that say, I went to South America, and all I got was this yeah. lousy T-shirt. Basically, it's, it's yeah. It's yeah. just And maybe it was. Tourism. Maybe it was. I, when yeah. I was this is, I, this is kind of a related issue. When I was an undergraduate, uh, Jeb, you'll probably recognize this guy's name, Pedro Armias. No. Was a Mesoamericanist years ago. I, I don't actually. All right, really sweet, sweet guy, and he was talking about independent invention versus diffusion, and he said that generally speaking, when a when a culture, the recipient of diffused ideas, when they receive, when they actually embrace a new a new idea, a new technology, they only are able to do so when they could have invented it on their own anyway, and they were right. at a point where they would have. Exactly. So, you know, so it's like if you drop a bunch of of iPhones in um, a traditional village in South America, they're not going to be pumping out iPhones next week. Right. Yeah, that gets back. Um, to, it gets it gets back to that literature of what once it gets adopted and how it gets adopted. Yeah. Right. right. Which again is something we really do. This isn't something we're hiding. It's not something yeah. that we are trying to keep conspiratorially keep under the cover. We do think about this, and we know what the data, we know what evidence should be there if this happened. In the case of the, uh, 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 especially in the case of the sweet potatoes and the plant boats, it's we're not there yet, but we're not throwing it out. Right, right, so, right. You know, that's really interesting. We would like more evidence. More as data. skeptical as I've stated that I am about it. It's possible and it's yeah. there. And like Ken said, if you can give me 
I'm not against the idea, and if there was more to it, I would totally be like, yep, they they brought plate floats and took potatoes. I, but it could also just be independent invention. Like, it, it also just could it be could. wrong. Like, yeah. we are in a place where it's hard to say. Exactly. Right. And I think and that's we have the to be, point. And as in science, you know what? We have to be comfortable very yeah. often saying, we don't know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, my final thought on this, my final thought on this is... Uh, I, I can't remember if I've told this story, but if I have, it's still a good story. Uh, when when I was in graduate school, I we had to take oral examinations where you were basically mm-hmm. quizzed on, in our case, anything in our field, anything for me in Mesoamerica or anything in archaeology. So it was broad. And it was quizzed by three professors. So it was basically a panel of experts asking you, basically figuring out if you know what you're talking about. And one of mine, Dan Heelan, uh, who's now retired from Tulane, he would not behind every question, but behind a lot of the questions go, are you sure about that? <laughs> now, we colloquially in English use that as basically a polite way of saying, I think you're wrong. Right. right. But he was doing that to me because he knew that my intention was, and I already was doing it to some degree, was to stand in front of people and talk with some element of authority about what I thought I knew. And I right. better be damn comfortable when I don't know what I'm talking about to admit it. And right. if you're not, you're not ready to do it. I mean, it's it's not quite like a Yoda on Dagobah sort of thing, but there's an element of you need to get in a mental space where you are humble enough to be able to actually say, I don't know. My favorite one is, I'll look that up and get back to you. Right. That's, that's a good answer to that one. it up on Wikipedia, we're fine. What, is there something wrong with Wikipedia? Damn it, my paper's all wrong. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you very much. It's been a good episode, awesome. and I will talk it's to you all later. Trials, all right, thank you. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com